We're looking at Exodus chapter one today. I heard about two widows talking about how their husbands had died. And the one shared her story and the other one said, well, my two husbands, the first two died by mushroom poisoning. And the lady was a little bit taken back and said, well, how did the most recent one die? She said, well, he was stubborn. He died by a cracked skull. That's bad. But we're looking at Exodus chapter one. I'm going to talk for a few moments about the plot of Satan. The plot of Satan. And of course, his plot is always to destroy the Lord and his anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what he is up to all the time. He wants to destroy us because we're the children of God. He wants to destroy Jesus because he's a son of God and the son of man. And so we'll look at Exodus chapter one and we're going to have a series. I'm not sure what we're going to cut off at chapter 12, the Passover, but we'll be going through the plagues and this uh, great history of, of Egypt here in the next several weeks. Exodus means way out or departure. And it's translated decrease, or excuse me, not de de decease in uh, several passages. We find entrance in 2 Peter 1 and Exodus in 2 Peter 1. And the, the book of Genesis closes with a family and the book of Exodus just takes that family and forms that family into a nation. And chapter one covers from Jacob's entrance into Egypt in 1877 B.C. up until uh, Moses' birth uh, in uh, 1526, and of course, eventually Joshua leading them in the promised land. But Exodus uh, would take place in 1445. A lot of history here. We'll point that out in a moment. According to uh, Joshua chapter 8, Jesus, uh, and, and of course, Mark chapter 12, uh, they are both, both those passages let us know that Jesus is the one, or Moses is the one who wrote that. Mark says, quotes Jesus and saying, Moses wrote the Pentateuch. So some of the scholars that say, well, he didn't write the Pentateuch have to would call Jesus, I guess, a liar because he said Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Moses, therefore, is the author. Um, there's a code called the Code of Hammurabi in 1901 was discovered and really talks all about these patriarchal customs and a lot of the history here. So archaeological evidence has really come out and backed, out, backed up scripture. Not that we need that, but it's nice to know that. And so let's, let's look at chapter 1 and stand with me and we'll read six verses. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, and Gad, and Asher. All the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. Now the 70 here mentioned include Jacob, his 12 sons, his one daughter, his 51 grandsons, granddaughter and four great -grand granddaughters. They all entered Egypt. But Joseph had died. And, uh, and, and uh, Joseph died and all his brethren, the last verse I'm reading, and all that generation. God bless us as we take a look in your book for a walk in the world. I need you, Lord, in clarity of thought to present this well and for you to have your way in what I say to speak to hearts today. We need you. We ask you to bless this message today. We thank you for the song and the, the choir and all that's been good so far. And you are always good, Lord. Thank you for that. Bless now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Now, in between chapter one, verse six and verse seven is hundreds of years. So we find that Exodus in Exodus, Moses recaps the book of Genesis. Genesis ends with the, the death of Joseph. Exodus picks up there. And then in verse seven, we find they're fruitful. They're in Egypt. They're multiplying and hundreds of hundreds of years have passed by. There are great types in the book of Exodus. Of course, throughout the Bible, there are great types. In Exodus, Egypt is a type of the world. Canaan is a type of heaven. And we sing a song sometimes, we're living in Canaan land now. Uh, while it's not, not comparable to heaven, we know that when we have peace and joy in our heart, because we're saved and everything's all right, there's a little bit of that Canaan feeling inside of us. To know that in a world of turmoil, we are blessed. Ephesians says we're blessed with spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So we are living in Canaan when we're walking with the Lord, but not quite like Canaan's going to be to come in heaven. But we find that Pharaoh's a type of Satan. We know that. Bondage here in Egypt is a type of the bondage of sin. The Red Sea, the Bible tells us, is a type of the baptism. We know that a cloud is a type of spiritual leadership. We find Amalek in here, a type of the flesh. We know that uh, there's several types of, of Christ in the rock in the weary land, a type of Christ, the Passover. He's our Passover, uh, the bread of life. And of course, Moses himself was a type. He's a type in his calling. He's a prophet, a priest, a servant, a deliverer, a mediator, and a shepherd. His character, he's, he's meek, faithful, obedient, mighty, and a miracle worker. His circumstances, he was a son in danger, like Christ, chosen to suffer, rejected like his, by his brethren. He, he led the people, he fed the people, he carried their burdens. So all those types, everything points to Jesus. You can't find a book in the Old Testament where it doesn't clearly point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thousands of years had passed, actually 1,500, 2,000 years had passed, and all these things point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Moses as well being a type. And we read these first six verses and they really link Genesis to Exodus because when you get to verse seven, uh, everything changes now. That It's been hundreds of years and now Moses is gonna be born and we know that's a long time after uh, Joseph dies. The Bible says in verse seven, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. So here are the children of Israel. They're just growing, growing, growing. They're having babies at an alarming rate. Uh, but remember, God told Abraham, you'll become a mighty nation. And so the devil's concerned and the, and the people of Egypt are concerned. Temporarily, the high coast generation took over and ruled the land and, and they hated Israel. And then the Egyptians ran them out and Egypt took back over. And they had hated those people so much to kind of pass that hate onto, onto the children of Israel. But we know these women were fruitful. They actually took a census in Numbers chapter one and there were 603,000 men 20 years and under. And that's just counting the men 20 and under. There were at least 2 million plus people in Egypt at this time. And the word multiply here is an interesting word. It's only used twice in, in the Old Testament referring to people. That's when uh, Noah was supposed to multiply and refill the earth. And here, elsewhere, it's used of swarms of insects. I mean, so they were really having babies. I mean, you can imagine. Um, I heard about a, a lady in, that uh, I heard about China. They said someone somewhere in China, a baby's born. Or, I messed that up so bad. Every minute there's a baby born in China. And I said, we need to find that poor lady and help her. But <laughs> not one lady. But I mean, China, six, you know, three, 
uh, just I, I can't remember the amount, I think 300,000 babies are born every month maybe. It's just an alarming amount of kids uh, being born and, and it's a wonderful thing and they're, they're killed a lot of them because they're not supposed to keep them. But we know that the children of Israel were having babies at an alarming rate here. And these women were fruitful and they were just uh, having babies. And we know that in verse eight, it says here, now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. The Egyptians had loved Joseph and his people for a long time. But hundreds of years have gone by and this leader didn't care for them and he was threatened by the large mass of people. And so we know it says here that uh, in verse 9, and he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Let's deal wisely with them. So what they did in verse 11, we're not going to read that, but they set slave drivers, taskmasters, uh, leaders over them. Uh, they, they, they were just controlling them and ruling over them and pouring all kinds of work onto them. That was the plan of Satan and the king and the people of Egypt to stop them from growing. We'll work them so hard in the fields. We'll add work to them. They made the brick, then they had to make the mortar. They had to plant their own crops and harvest their own food. And it became just such a hard thing just to survive in Egypt. But it says here, Verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So the devil wasn't going to have his way. I mean, they just keep having babies. It, I, I mean, an unbelievable amount of babies. And, and of course, this is a threat. And so it, it, the Bible says that they multiplied and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. They were grieved. Um, they afflicted them. They were grieved. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. They had to make the brick and the mortar and plant the crops. Unbelievable pressure on the children of Israel. So the devil's plot was to work them super hard. And then they wouldn't be able to have kids. Well, it didn't work. It didn't work. We know that Satan was really trying to kill Moses the deliverer. And he always thought any deliverer in Israel was going to be the Messiah. And so he hated Israeli's leaders and would try and kill them. So his first plot was to work them to death. Then in verse 15 and 16, his second plot was to have midwives killed for him. It says, and the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives. Now that could be translated from Hebrew, the midwives of the Hebrews or the Hebrew midwives. And scholars, good scholars, I'm talking about godly men who love the word on both sides of this argument say these were uh, either Egyptians or foreigner, foreign midwives and others say they were Hebrew midwives. And it's difficult to determine and, and we don't worry about that. But it does seem later that these midwives talk about the Egyptians as though they're different people. However, the names are Hebrew names. And so we'll look at the text and we'll be able to see why there's an argument. But here... The names are the, of these are Hebrew names. And so the Bible says he speaks to them. One of their names was Sifra and the other name was Pua. And these are probably two of many, many, many hundreds of midwives in, in Israel helping bring babies into the world. And he says here, when you see them go to the birthing chair, most scholars tell us it was some sort of rock chair. They had made a birthing chair. When you see that, you go and you assist them. And he says, if they're girls, you let them live. If they're boys, you kill them. It says here in verse 16, when you do the office of the midwife to the Hebrew women, 
And that, that grammar indicates they're, they're foreign women, different than the Egyptian women. And you see them upon the stools. If it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then you shall live. Wow, that's a gruesome, gruesome order. I, I think about how difficult it would be to be a midwife to be under that kind of pressure. Um, but I love verse 17 because it says, but the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God. I was reading an interesting thing, and we talk about God's sovereignty and how God's always one step ahead of the enemy because God knows it all. And you think that God uh, had it arranged where he'd talk to two midwives that loved God and, and uh, think that they're going to do the dirty work of killing all these boys, and they wouldn't do it because they loved him. And God knew all about that because God is always in control, even way back then. I was reading about Napoleon's army camped on the hills above a, a town in Austria, poised to attack. And it was Easter Sunday morning. The citizens had met to decide whether they should defend themselves or surrender. And the pastor rose and addressed the frightened people and said, friends, we have been counting on our own strength. And apparently that has failed. Since this is the day of our Lord's resurrection, let's just ring the bells and have our service. This is a true story. Leave the matter in the Lord's hands, the pastor said. He said, we know only our weaknesses and we, we just have to depend on the power of God to defend us because we'll get wiped out. Napoleon has a massive army. The people agreed and the church rang the bells. Napoleon's army heard the bells suddenly and mistook them for jubilation over the arrival of the Austrian army. And Napoleon's army retreated. Isn't that something? Just a church ringing bells and Napoleon's entire army moved out of the area. Talk about God. See, God's always in the middle of everything. That's what I love about him. He's in the middle of my life. When I'm in difficult situations, he's there. When I'm in a good mood, he's there. When I'm in a bad mood, he's there. He never leaves me nor forsakes me. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the outcome. He provides. He protects. And so here it says, but the midwives feared God. I love that. There's a but in there, and the word but lets us know God's in control. In fact, back to verse 12, it says, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. Why? God's in control. There's always a little but in your life. You're frustrated, you're discouraged, you're sick and tired, but God's on the throne. He's on the throne in everyone's life here, no matter what your problem is, and I love that about God. And so the uh, Egyptians... Are, are concerned and they, they are concerned about all these babies and so forth. And, and then we find these midwives change the course of history. Think of all the great women of history. Think of Rahab. Think of Rahab the harlot who hid the spies and how God blessed her. And think of Esther who saved a nation by getting the boldness to speak to a king when she wasn't really authorized to speak. You think of uh, uh, Deborah and Jael, and that is an unbelievable story. Women in those days were the ones who set up the tent. The men had other duties, and so they would always set up the tent. And they'd set the tent up, and they'd have ropes, and they'd drive the ropes into the ground with sharp wooden uh, uh, spikes, and they'd set the tent up. And so they're very good at it. And here's Deborah. Jael, the, the evil leader, is, is asleep, and she walks up to him with a peg in her hand, and once one stroke drives a spike right through her temples and kills him his temple, kills him instantly. You think that's gruesome. But, you know, these are, these are women who God praises for what they did. And these women change history. We could even talk about Mary and Martha. 
And all the different women in the, in, the, in the Bible that changed the course of history, I'm so grateful for them. And so here we find the midwives feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded, but saved the children alive. I love that. Second plot of Satan doesn't work either. Work these people till, the, till they drop of exhaustion? Didn't work. Let's kill the, have the midwives kill the babies but they, they, they didn't know the verse, but the New Testament would later teach we ought to obey God rather than man. And those women stood for God, and I love that. And they changed history. In verse 18, it says here, And the king of Egypt called for the midwives, and he said to them, Why have you done this thing, and have saved the children, the men children alive? And the midwives said, they lied here unto Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively, and they are delivered air. In other words, they deliver them, Quickly, we get there, the baby's already delivered and, and they have it hidden. We, we cannot do what you've asked us to do. Now, if they were, I believe if they were Hebrew women, they'd have been killed right there. But I don't know. We, we know that the midwives feared God. Wednesday, we talked briefly about Romans 3.8. Should we uh, do evil that good may come? And of course, the Bible said God doesn't want that. So here's someone who lies. We, Rahab lied and hid the spies. And God's not rewarding all these people for their lies. He's rewarding them because they stood for God and they're on God's side. And I love that. Uh, we find here God dealt with them because they feared him. First Samuel 2.30 says, for them that honor me, I will honor. For them that honor me, I will honor. And I love that God wants to honor us in, in what we do. Um, so we find here, back, I'm going to back up to verse 12 and just want to make another point here in verse 12. We, we, we went to the word but twice. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. I love Psalm 119. Turn there with me for a minute. Psalm chapter 119. Had this highlighted and looked over it and I want to go back here and mention this. In Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I have kept thy word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Sometimes affliction is good for us. The trying of your faith works patience. You say, well, in my life right now, nothing's fair. Everything's bad and, and some people need to pay the price for how they've harmed me or my family. Have you ever had a thought like that? I've had a thought like that. This week I told something bad about somebody, had three or four bad stories shared with me this week. And there was something bad that happened to someone in my family and I, I thought, I wanna just get on the phone and anonymously call this organization and let them know what happened. That's what I wanna do, I wanna take control of it. And then the Lord said, just leave it alone. Come on, Lord, let me go, let me have free reign, I wanna deal with this. Just leave it alone. Because sometimes, as the psalmist says here, that uh, challenges like, like, and difficulties come our way and they are actually good for us. Affliction can be good for us. We tend to forget, and every month or two I remind you that we are in an eternal world and we're supposed to view life from an eternal perspective. You know, lo losing all your assets, don't matter, God will take care of you. Losing your health, doesn't matter, you'll be with him. You know, I'll guarantee you Betty Laudermilk right now is not worried about anything. 
She's with the Lord. So don't stress out. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, prayer and supplication. Cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you. God is going to take care of your situation. And it's hard for us to sit back and say, I'll trust in the Lord. But that's what we have to do. And you will have affliction in your life, just like the world. And, and the Bible says we're given a crown for suffering. And I said this, and I'll say it again. I think I said this two or three times since I've been your pastor. You'll never get a diadem unless you first get a Stephanos. What's that, pastor? A diadem is a crown of fancy jewels, a beautiful crown. And we know there's five crowns at least given to us in heaven for if we live correctly. But the word Stephanos is just an evergreen wreath that were given to people who ran in games and did things. Not like the fancy crown of a king, just a, a wreath. And guess what it's named after? Stephen, Stephanos. Now what happened to Stephen? He was stoned to death. Can you imagine those big rocks hitting your head? I thought sometimes my kids had rocks in their head. And maybe times I wanted to throw a rock at their head. I never did. But can you imagine that's really, I, I'm making, I should be humorous about this because we think about Stephen. He died a terrible death. While he's preaching, he's being pelted with stones to death. And that's where the word Stephanos, the crown of suffering, came from. And if you want to die in heaven, you'd better be willing to wear a Stephanos in this life. Amen? Yeah. Nothing easy. Nothing easy in, in the Christian realm. We're supposed to take up a cross and follow him. But I love the sovereignty of God and, and how that he knew and he had the right midwives who received the instruction, probably talked to the other midwives and said, listen, they want to kill these Hebrew baby boys and you know how much we love them. We, we have a memory of, of uh, Joseph and these were our friends and whatever they said, I don't know, but they decided to disobey and a whole lot of midwives, midwives were involved in this decision and they spared all these kids. You think of the, 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 the Nile crocodile and the throwing the babies in there and the drowning them would be a, a gruesome thing. And so obviously uh, they didn't want that to happen. And so they, they spared these kids because they feared God, but they feared God and, and they did everything they could to spare the kids. Look at verse 20. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. Scholars say that's not necessarily talking about a structure. It's talking about a family. God blessed their homes, put a roof over their head and gave them kids. Isn't that great? Bless them because they would not obey an evil commandment. Sometimes it's challenging for us to go to work. I, I know when I pastored a military church, I had several commanders and, and uh, you know, they were, they were great guys and they'd invite me to the change of command and it would be pretty neat, you know. And I know they'd put a glass of alcohol before every person at the table. And some of them had a conviction not to touch the stuff and so they wouldn't drink it. Others would. Sometimes they'd have too many. One, guy, one time a fella talked to me and he said, Pastor, I, I struggle sometimes. I, I have a little too much to drink at these change of commands because they really want us to have a drink and to toast and I get carried away. And yet I had other people in the church 
that wouldn't touch the stuff. And, and when the commanders kind of urged them to, they wouldn't. I had commanders that wouldn't touch the stuff and told their troops, you don't have to drink it either. But it's not easy to just stand up and say, I, I'm different. I'm not going to do something against my convictions or certainly against the word of God. And this is far more important than your convictions. Your convictions are good. If they're of the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't misunderstand. But when you go, go against this word, that's a terrible thing to do. And so it's important for us to honor God in, in our walk of life. Honor God when you're at work. That's your mission field. Do you know that? We think, well, I'll go to church on Sunday and then I, I can go to work and I, I know the guys at work. I can live any way I want to. They don't care. Wait a minute. God cares. He's placed you there as a missionary. And so we have to honor that. But think of the sovereignty of God. God de dealt well with them. Uh, for them that honor me, will I honor? I was reading another illustration this week I thought was pretty neat. In 1945, a young associate pastor married his fiance, and they had very little money. They scraped up enough to take a honeymoon. They went on their honeymoon. When they arrived at the hotel, they were told it had now been a rehabilitation center and not available for someone to spend the night. They hitchhiked, they hitchhiked to a grocery store several miles down the road. The owner was sympathetic to their situation and let them stay in a room over the store. The owner quickly caught on that they were Christians and referred to them to a friend with a nicer place so they had a beautiful place to go and spend their honeymoon. During the week, their host invited them to attend a youth rally at a nearby uh, Christian conference center. The regular song leader was out sick. And so this gentleman, being a song leader, was asked to help at the meeting. And so he helped uh, lead the singing. And that night he led the singing and consented to lead the music for the young evangelists for the rest of the week. And that began Cliff Barrels and Billy Graham's relationship. Think of the sovereignty of God. Would, would they have ever really even met? <laughs> the hotel was closed. God. They were offered a, a room above the grocery store. God. Uh, the grocer noticed they're a Christian. God. Invited him to this meeting. God. The song leader was sick. God. And they asked him to leave. God. Billy met Cliff Barrows, who became his song leader years and years and years and years. That's an awesome story. Whether or not you, you like Cliff Barrows' music or Billy Graham's preaching, that's not the point. I think they're great men. But, but some people say, well, I don't like the way he preaches. Hey, that's not the point here. The point here is to notice the handiwork of God. The handiwork of God. In my life, so many times, I thought, what's going on, Lord? but he always had a plan. He always had a plan. Um, years ago, I played basketball in the military leagues and I played on the Panama Can Canal Commission team. Played against all the military units. We played against the Delta Forces and we played against Green Berets. We played against the, the Air Force, all these different teams. And we played the, uh, <clears throat> I was with mostly all Panamanians, a few Americans that worked in the Canal Zone and most of my teammates were Panamanians. And, we played the Special Forces, the Green Berets, <clears throat> and uh, I was kind of a rabble-rouser, a big guy, and I wasn't afraid of them or anything like that, and I, I was probably dumb not to be. But we were always in a tense, heated game with them, where usually they were in the finals with us or something, and, and uh, we won most of the time, and I'm sure they didn't like us. And, and, and during Just Cause, the, the games kind of got heated, and, and I had to tell my Panamanian friends, now listen, I'm an American. 
You guys work on the base and you're friends of the Americans. You're not with Noriega, but you have to understand, I'm not going to, I'm going to be very careful in these games because these are my fellow countrymen. And that was kind of challenging for me. I'm, I'm the one guy on the whole base that was playing with Panamanians against the GIs. And that was challenging because my ministry is to the GIs. And the commander, the major of the Green Berets came to this game and he played, he's a pretty good player. And I went up for a layup and he just took me out, slammed me into a, uh, a cabinet with all the trophies and stuff. And he put his uh, thing on my head. And uh, <clears throat> I told him, you know, uh, that was a dirty play and stuff. And I explained to him, these guys all work on your Jeeps and work on your vehicles. There's no need for this. And uh, <clears throat> so, I thought, well, this has gone too far. Do I have to give up playing ball? And I thought, I'm just going to go see him. So I went to his office to see him and just told him, I said, sir, I want you to understand something. I'm here, pastor in a military church. I love GIs. I also love basketball. And I've always played ball. And uh, he said, yeah, and you're always beating up, beating up on us. Uh, not, not this, but winning the games. I said, well, I mean, we don't, we aren't allowed to enter into the military tournament, so it's only a regular season for you to play us, and it's going to make you better. We had quite a talk, and I was able to witness to him. And a few days later, uh, but maybe not a few days, actually a few weeks later, they're on our schedule for the second time, and I'm, I'm nervous. I'm thinking, well, I, I don't want to quit the team. It would hurt the team, and I love ball. And I show up, and he meets me out on the floor and shakes hands, and he wants to wrestle me before the game. It's 20 minutes before the game. I, I just want to just whip up on you and I'll be satisfied. And I whipped up on him. So <laughs> now we're going to play the game. He's mad. And, uh, and so I, I just went to my teammates. I said, I can't play. So I'm sitting on the bench. And at the start of the game, he, he stops the game, goes to the scores table, and he comes over. And he shook my hand and said, I really respect you. And I want you to play. You know, it wasn't the wrestling match. It was going to his office and telling him I loved him, telling him all about Jesus that broke his heart. And I don't know what happened. He should have been happy. I sit in the bench. But he uh, ended up, the next year they had a tournament. They asked me to play in the tournament on their team, and I did. And that ended up resulting in a good relationship with one of the commanders on base. Goofy story. But I always recognize and everything has gone sovereignty. I said, I don't want to wrestle you. I mean, all these people are watching. They're going to, th what are they going to think? They weren't allowed to punch each other on base, but he thought maybe that would be his way of taking out his frustration. Goofy thing, goofy story, everything about that's weird. But you know, Green Berets only think one way, <laughs> fighting, you know? And he respected me because I came to his office is what I believe happened. And you say, I, I don't understand in my life what's going on. And a lot of times we don't. You have to trust God. He's got a plan. And we think about the plan here uh, uh, where, where, you know, these, these ladies lie about the children. Then look at the next verse, verse 22. And Pharaoh charged all his people. This is his third attempt. Every son that is born should be cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So the third plan is throw the boys in the river and everyone in the country's charged with that. Find baby boys two and under, throw them in the river with the Nile crocodiles and all the problems of the river. I want to ask you three questions tonight. Are you aware of the fact that God is in control of your life? Even the bad stuff, even the weird stuff?
e even when you're driving down the interstate and you got bikes in the back of your bike rack and your trunk's packed full with stuff and it starts to rain and while it's pouring down rain, you have a flat tire and you think, oh brother, it's just pouring. That's my story. And I have to get out and change the tire. And I got to get all that clothes and suitcases out and lay them all over I-75. And I've got to change a tire. And then you, you get it all. You're just soaked. You're miserable. It's hot. It's humid. And you're, you've got this stuff spread out. People think, what is going on with that family? I had the bike rack to take off the bike. And I change the tire and I pack it all back. I'm sweaty. I'm dirty. I'm really frustrated. I get in the car and it stops raining almost the moment I was done with that. <laughs> Now, what good comes out of that? I'm going to go to a church mad. Why does it happen? Why does it happen? I, I, I said one time to someone, the only time your toasts burn is when you're down to your last piece of bread. <laughs> I don't know. But are you aware of the fact that all these strange circumstances, all of you have a story you could tell that doesn't make any sense, like my story. And you've always wondered why it happened the way it happened. I don't know, but he does. And he allows for it to happen. Amen. The good stuff. God's aware of the bad stuff. Your sin he's aware of. He's also aware when you confess. He's aware of your confession. And remember the affliction the psalmist recognized brought him back to the Lord. And, and God's affliction sometimes gives us direction. Whenever God's afflicting you, instead of complain, pray. There's a reason for it. When he's allowing bad things to happen to good people, there's a purpose for it. And our lives are just temporary, and these things that are happening are somehow involved in molding us and shaping us for the eternal time we spend with God. There's a reason for it. You know Romans 8, 28. All things work together for them that love God. It doesn't say all things are good. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his word. doesn't say they're good. Ecclesiastes says he makes everything beautiful in his time. It doesn't happen in my time. And so sometimes I, I don't understand and I, I'm frustrated with God and wonder what God's doing. I wonder what Cliff Barrows thought when he arrived at his little motel room and had been closed down. He might have been spitting bullets. I don't know. What in the world? What are you doing, God? This is my honeymoon. The hotel's closed? What, what am I going to do? I don't know. I don't know how he acted, but now I know how it turned out. And that's an awesome story. And all of you have stories. And you have to recognize God's hand on your life. If you don't recognize that this is divine interference happening to you, you're missing a big lesson. You're missing a big lesson. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to trust Christ as your savior. It's not an accident that you're here today. It's not an accident that I preach this message. I don't know how it affects you or applies to you, but God has a plan for everyone's life and he, he knows of your sin and he wants to save you. And if he saves you, he'll have a plan for your life and your life will make sense. And I ask you today to consider trusting the Lord as your savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Lord, for this message that I may have preached done a terrible job preaching. I don't know, but I know you had your way today that I preached the way I did preach. And I don't know uh, the hearts of the people here. I don't know who's saved, who's lost. I trust most people here are saved, but you know the truth of every heart. 
You know the problem of every person because you're God. You're God Almighty. You're all-powerful. You're all-knowing. And of course, you care. And I'm so thankful that you care. You care for every person here as you cared for me. We just ask you to speak to hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.